Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Elijah is a zealous prophet, attacking idolatry and injustice, championing God. He performs miracles, restoring life and calling down fire. When his earthly life ends, he vanishes in a whirlwind, carried off to heaven in a fiery chariot. Was this a spectacular death, or did Elijah escape death entirely? The latter view prevailed. Though residing in heaven, Elijah revisits earth to help, rescue, enlighten, and eventually herald the Messiah. Because of his messianic role, Jewish people opened the door for Elijah during each Seder, the meal commemorating liberation from slavery and anticipating final redemption. Tune in as we speak with Daniel C. Matt about his recent book, Becoming Elijah, Prophet of Transformation. You're listening to New Books and Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm your host, Michael Morales. Daniel C. Matt is a leading authority on Jewish mysticism. He served as professor at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California, and has also taught at Stanford University and the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. His publications include the Zohar, Pritzker edition, 12 volumes, The Essential Kabbalah, God and the Big Bang, and Zohar, Annotated and Explained. Daniel, welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. Thank you. Good to be here, Michael. So though you've been on the show once before, tell us again about yourself so we can get to know you. Sure. I think the the formative uh, fact about my life is that my father was a rabbi. So I I grew up as a rabbi's son and and, uh, learned Hebrew and and read Bible with him. Uh, But I remember always from a very young age um, being somewhat in awe of my father. I mean, we were all in awe of our parents. But I learned that he was deeply spiritual. And you would think, well, of course, a rabbi must be spiritual. But in rabbinic circles, he was really known as, as a, kind of a hidden tzaddik, a hidden righteous one. And, and Shabbat was, the Sabbath was really the highlight of the week at our home. And everything seemed to revolve around God and Torah and Judaism. So there was no escape from that. I, I, that was the world I knew. And and I, I loved and loved it, and I, I wrestled with it. I struggled with it, but that was certainly a, if not the, formative fact in, in my growing up. Um, so I, I was attracted to to Jewish study, and immersed myself in it. And I really was drawn to trying to find the spiritual core of Judaism because I saw that manifested in in our family and my father, especially. And I started studying uh, writings of Martin Buber. I remember when I was in college looking how, how Buber really brought Hasidic teaching to the world. Hasidism is, you know, a later popularization of, of the Jewish mystical tradition. So I was attracted to, to the ideas and the teachings of uh, finding God's presence in the world. And then my junior year abroad, I spent in Jerusalem uh, at the Hebrew University. And there I began studying the Zohar, the major book of the Jewish mystical tradition. It's a very cryptic book. It's written in an intentionally secretive way, very poetic, very filled with with dense symbolism. Uh, 
And I knew I had this one year in Jerusalem to study it. So I took beginning Zohar and advanced Zohar at the same time. And I was kind of lost in advanced Zohar, but that didn't matter because I was also lost in beginning Zohar. It's such a challenging book. But I fell in love with that book and, and that became uh, the focus of my academic work. And then in the 1990s, I was approached by a, a Jewish family, a wealthy family, uh, who asked me to translate the Zohar from Aramaic to English. But the Zohar had been translated previously, but it just wasn't done very well, and, and the symbolism wasn't explained. So I took on that project, and that ended up taking quite a while. It turned into an 18-year adventure. I completed that about, uh, about six years ago. Your book is on the biblical figure of Elijah. What first drew your interest to him? Yeah, what first drew my attention, this really goes back to, to your earlier question. <clears throat> I kind of feel like I, I grew up with Elijah, sort of. His presence was, was in the house. Now, why is that so? I think many of you know that it's traditional to welcome Elijah to the Seder, the Passover Seder, the most special meal of the whole year in the Jewish calendar. Uh, Elijah is, is expected to come to the Seder to show up because of his role as the one who will announce the Messiah. And Passover is seen as a time of redemption, the redemption from slavery in Egypt, and then the final redemption when the Messiah will appear. And Elijah is seen as one who will pave the way for the Mashiach, who will announce the coming of the Messiah. So Jews open the door, actually, during the Seder to, to welcome Elijah in. And a cup of wine is placed on the table for him. Well, we can talk about this a little bit more later. So that happened every year, of course. But, but it wasn't just an annual event. In our house, Elijah was, uh, was acknowledged or his name was invoked every single Saturday night. Why? Because he also concludes the Jewish Sabbath. The Sabbath is concluded Saturday night when three stars appear. And along with the prayers, a few brief prayers for the conclusion of Shabbat, it's very common, it's very traditional to sing a, a song about Elijah, to, to welcome him and to, uh, to invite him, to expect him to come and bring the Messianic redemption. So every Saturday night, we would sing a song about Elijah, and I wondered, who is this, who is this fellow, who is this person? Then I learned he's in the Bible, but he always seemed to be a mysterious figure. I couldn't really figure him out. And that uh, intrigued me and puzzled me. And um, some years ago, I was invited to contribute a volume to this series, Jewish Lives. And I came up with uh, Elijah because he was still troubling me, still puzzling me. Daniel, would you give us an introduction to Elijah by telling us of his role in the Bible? Right. It's really good to start with, you know, with the earliest texts we have. And Elijah does appear pretty prominently in the Bible, in the book of Kings. He doesn't have his own biblical book, like some of the famous prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Elijah is an, an earlier prophet, uh, and he's described in the book of Kings. I think there are about seven chapters in the book of Kings, toward the end of 1 Kings and the beginning of 2 Kings, uh, describing Elijah. So who was he? He lived in the 9th century BCE. And he lived during the reign of King Ahab of Israel. We know the name Ahab, of course, from Moby Dick. But Herman Melville took that name from the Bible. Melville was a devoted Christian and knew the Bible thoroughly. Uh, 
Uh, and Elijah was opposed to Ahab. Why was he opposed to the king? Because the worship of Baal was spreading through Israel. The worship of the Canaanite storm god, Baal, B-A-A-L. He was the main rival to the God of Israel, Adonai, Hashem, Yahweh. I usually pronounce it for the Hebrew letters, Yud, He, Vav, He. But let's say Adonai. Uh, the battle was between Adonai and Baal. The people were, many of the Israelites wanted to have both of them. They wanted to have their cake and eat it too. They wanted to believe in the traditional God, but also worship the local Canaanite God, just in case. And Elijah was totally, singularly devoted to the worship of the one true God. He fought against the worship of Baal. One of the most dramatic stories in the book of Kings about Elijah is his contest with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And that's very close to present-day Haifa. It's the city Haifa on the Israeli coast is, is on Mount Carmel, at the base of Mount Carmel and up the mountain. So it's a very prominent mountain in, in the land of Israel. <clears throat> Excuse me. And Elijah arranged a contest there, invited the king, Ahab, and as many Israelites who could come, and 450 prophets of Baal, along with Elijah, the prophet of Adonai. And Elijah sets up a contest, who can call down fire from heaven? Each of them, the, the prophets of Baal and Elijah, each slaughter an ox, and they place it on the altar. And Elijah says, let's see who can call down fire from heaven to consume this offering. So the prophets of Baal try for several hours. They're not successful. Elijah says, why don't you sing louder? Maybe your God is sleeping. Maybe he's off on a journey. Maybe he has to relieve himself. Maybe, maybe sing a little louder, chant louder. So the prophets dance wildly and shout and gash themselves, but still no response, no fire from heaven. Elijah steps in, offers a brief prayer, and immediately fire comes down and consumes the offering. The people are won over. They all declare Adonai is the true God. Adonai is God. So it seems like Elijah has won that contest, but things aren't that simple. King Ahab is married to Queen Jezebel, and she's the one who especially promoted the worship of Baal. She's enraged by the fact that Elijah defeated and then actually slaughtered all the 450 prophets of Baal. So she threatens Elijah's life, and he has to escape. He runs off into the desert. And at this point, after his apparent great triumph of defeating the prophets of Baal, he realizes that he hasn't won completely, that Jezebel is still in control. And he actually falls into a deep depression. He asks God to take his life. He feels that he's failed as a prophet. But he's revived miraculously. He continues on into the desert, actually goes to Mount Sinai. And there he has a revelation of God. There's a very dramatic natural phenomena, wind and earthquake and fire. But the Bible says God was not in the wind. God was not in the earthquake. God was not in the fire. Rather, how does God appear? In silence. According to the biblical text, kol demamadaka, the sound of sheer stillness. In that stillness, Elijah encounters God. And God asks him a very existential question. God says, malachafo Eliyahu, what are you doing here, Elijah? 
which may imply, why are you here? Why did you run off to the desert? You're a prophet. You should be back with your people. You should bring them back to the true worship of Adonai. And Elijah then sets off on, on other missions. He, he First, he says to God, Kano Kineti, I've been so zealous. And that really puts Elijah in, that's Elijah in a nutshell. He is the zealot. He, he feels the people have betrayed the covenant. And God seems to be perhaps uh, encouraging Elijah to be a little more understanding, to be a little gentler. Maybe that's what's implied by saying God is not in the fire. God is not in the earthquake. God isn't necessarily in these loud phenomena. God is in stillness. God is in silence as well. But in any case, Elijah then goes off. He, he is involved in other adventures, standing up for social justice, criticizing King Ahab for misusing his royal authority. And finally, we come to the end of Elijah's life on earth, according to the Bible. He's taken up to heaven in a fiery chariot. And that is the end of Elijah, it would seem, according to the Bible, but it's not clear what that means, that he's transported to heaven in a fiery chariot. His disciple, Elisha, sees this happening, and Elisha feels that Elijah has died. In fact, at that point, Elisha tears his garments in, in mourning. But all the Bible says is that he's taken up to heaven in that fiery chariot. And later we have a passage after the book of Kings in the prophet Malachi, the last of the prophets in the Hebrew Bible and the very end of the Hebrew Bible in the Christian scriptures. And Malachi concludes his book of prophecy by saying, conveying God's word, look, I am going to bring back Elijah before the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the final day of reckoning, the final day of judgment. And so according to the Bible, Elijah will come back. So it seems, it seems from that text that, it, that Elijah has not died. And now we're really ready to move from the biblical material to the, to the next stage, to what happens to Elijah in the Talmud and the Midrash in the next phases of, of Jewish tradition. Now, the Talmud and Midrash don't simply make references to the biblical Elijah, but they transform him into something of a compassionate super rabbi, as you put it. Tell us about this use of Elijah. Yes, it's, it's phenomenal how Elijah changes from a fierce zealot to this compassionate figure. So, you know, in, in later Jewish tradition, the Midrash, which is imaginative commentary on the Torah, the Talmud, the main body of, of rabbinic teaching and, and law, and then in later Jewish folklore, especially, Elijah becomes the most popular figure in Jewish folklore. And in those accounts, in those stories, he's not the zealot. He's really a compassionate figure. Already in the Talmud, he's this compassionate super rabbi. He studies with the other rabbis. He teaches them Torah. So why this change? How could the fierce zealot turn into a master of compassion? He rescues people. He helps people. He inspires people. He doesn't seem to come with fire and brimstone. He comes with a, a loving heart. You could say that the rabbis uh, bring about this transformation. The rabbis, for the rabbis, Elijah is a little bit too harsh. A lot, and, and the rabbis are aware that sometimes zealotry can get you in trouble, right? The second temple was destroyed by the Romans in part because they were zealous Jews. They were fanatic Jews who, 
who fomented rebellion against the Romans. And the rabbis are aware that that kind of zealotry can, can bring great destruction, great, great national tragedy. So maybe partly because of that, they're willing to criticize Elijah as he is in the Bible for being too harsh with the people. And instead, they imagine, they really reimagine Elijah. And that, I would say, is the central thing that I'm exploring in the book, how Elijah is reimagined through the ages. Who is he in the Bible? Who does he become in later Jewish tradition and in Christian and, and Muslim tradition? So for the rabbis, he, uh, he is one who, who can inspire people. He really is, in a sense, an embodiment of the Holy Spirit. But it's hard to know what is the Holy Spirit. How can you encounter the Holy Spirit? Elijah is a way to put flesh and bones on the Holy Spirit. So if a rabbi has a vision of Elijah, that could be a way of saying that he's been inspired. And the rabbi experiences that inspiration through the figure of Elijah, who had a, an earlier biblical career and now turns into this, this more compassionate figure. One amazing thing in the Talmud and the Midrash is how he can really become a shapeshifter, right? He can turn into different forms, into different people. He, he turns up as an old man frequently, but also a horseman, an Arab, a Persian, a slave, a royal minister. There's one very short account I could, I could read to you, and this is where he, he becomes something unthinkable. Uh, this is a story about uh, um, Elijah and, and Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Meir was a, a figure in the Talmud, and at one point Rabbi Meir uh, had to rescue had to rescue his sister, his sister-in-law. Rabbi Meir's sister-in-law had been imprisoned by the Romans and actually condemned to spend the rest of her life in a brothel. So Rabbi Meir rescued his sister-in-law from the brothel, but as a result, the Romans put up his wanted picture. The Romans wanted to capture Rabbi Meir and, and do him in, probably, because he had rescued his sister-in-law. And so Elijah appears to rescue Rabbi Meir. And here's, uh, here's what the, how the Talmud describes it. The Romans went and engraved Rabbi Meir's image at the entrance of Rome and proclaimed, anyone who sees this face, bring him. One day, some Roman officers saw Rabbi Meir and ran after him. He ran away from them. Some say that Elijah appeared to the Roman officers as a prostitute and embraced Rabbi Meir. The officers said, perish the thought. If this were Rabbi Meir, he couldn't have done that. And in that way, Elijah saves Rabbi Meir. So it's a wild story, but the point is that Elijah breaks the rules. Elijah has his own agenda, and sometimes he can do things that would be unthinkable and unimaginable. He can turn into different personalities. And what he also does is to spend time studying Torah in heaven. Remember, he went up to heaven in the chariot, and it's not that he leaves heaven permanently. He stays in heaven, but he's available to help and to appear. And when he's in heaven, he spends some of his time in the heavenly academy, a special house of study where God teaches the souls of the righteous, and Elijah is granted membership there. And he really moves back and forth between the heavenly academy and various earthly academies, where he conveys to the rabbis teachings that have been offered in heaven. 
he can even convey what God is feeling, what God is thinking. So that's his, uh, the next stage of his remarkable career. Would you talk about the use of Elijah in Jewish ritual? How did he come to have so prominent a part in the Passover Seder? Yeah, I would say that, that most Jews in the world know about Elijah, especially because of the Seder, and many Christians have also come across that, that theme. Uh, many Jews are not, you know, so well versed in the, in the Hebrew Bible. They don't necessarily know the details of Elijah's life or his miracles. You know, by the way, Elijah and his disciple, Elisha, they are the, the only two people in the Hebrew Bible who are known especially for miracles. Of course, you find other accounts of miracles with Moses and other figures, but Elijah and Elisha, they specialize uh, in miracles. So even those who don't know the stories of of Elijah in the Bible, most Jews in the world have have encountered Elijah in one way or another, or at least talked about Elijah, heard his name at the Seder. So what is this? Why does does Elijah appear, appear at the Seder? First of all, because Passover is the time of redemption. That Passover is commemorating the redemption of the Jews from slavery in Egypt. And because it's a time of redemption, it's also seen as a time of looking forward to the future redemption. In fact, according to some tradition, the Messiah will appear on Passover. But this also explains uh, in the New Testament, right, why Jesus goes to Jerusalem uh, at Passover. That's the time of redemption. That's the time when you expect redemption to come. So it's no accident that uh, Jesus is at a Seder and that Jesus is in Jerusalem at that time. So in any case, the the Passover Seder is the time when you would expect redemption, hope for redemption. And since Elijah is the one who's going to announce the Messiah, right, going back to the prophet Malachi, who says Elijah will, will be sent right before the day of the Lord, For the rabbis in the Talmud, that was understood as as the Messiah. So Elijah is going to herald the Messiah or pave the way for the Messiah. So it would make sense for him to appear to the available, hopefully to to arrive on Passover and even at the Seder. So that's the background. But why specifically opening the door for Elijah and even pouring a cup of wine for Elijah on the Seder table? There's usually a very prominent, beautiful goblet filled with wine for Elijah. So what if this door and and the cup, as is the case with many customs, the best answer is about its origin, I don't know. Okay, we really don't know exactly how these two customs evolved, but but some, some hints at it, some steps we can identify. It's common to open the door at the Seder, not necessarily for Elijah, but you open the door at the beginning of the, of the Seder in some communities at some times in the past because we're welcoming in those who are needy, right? You actually have in the Passover Haggadah, let all who are hungry come and eat, let all who are thirsty come and drink. And you could say that you open the door not for Elijah, but for the poor to come in. That's there in, in the background, perhaps. But then we have an interesting comment. This is from someone writing in the 11th century. He says this, a rabbinic figure. He says, I saw that my father would not close the doors of our house at all. And until now, this is our custom. And on the night of Passover, the the doors of the house are open. When Elijah comes, we will go out to greet him quickly. 
without any delay. So it's interesting there, the custom, which is just, you know, beginning more or less, it's not to open the door so Elijah can come in. It's to open the door so we can go out. If Elijah comes, if the Messiah is going to come, if Elijah will come and announce the Messiah, we want to go out right away and greet him. So that's one piece of the puzzle, opening the door. Eventually, we're opening the door not so you could go out, but so that Elijah would be able to come in. And what about the cup of wine? Well, this is someone writing in the 15th century. Okay, we think of that as a long time ago, but if you think of it another way, you had Passover seders for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years without any cup being poured for Elijah, without the door being opened. These are relatively recent creations. So about the cup of wine, look what this rabbi says, writing in the 15th century. I have seen some people on the night of Passover who pour a special cup and place it on the table, saying that this is the cup for Elijah the prophet. And I don't know the reason. Even this rabbi himself, he doesn't know the reason. But it seems, he says, that the reason derives from this. If Elijah the prophet comes on the night of Passover, as we hope and expect, he too will need a cup. For even a poor person among Israel must drink no less than four cups. That's the tradition, to, re- to drink four cups of wine on, at the Seder. If Elijah comes, he's going to need it too. And if the cup isn't ready, we'd have to prepare it for him, which might delay the Seder. Okay, the worst thing would be to delay the Seder. The Seder is long enough as it is. You don't want to delay it to get a cup. You have to have the cup ready. So that seems to be the origin. But since then, since that 15th century figure, it gradually became very customary. And he intrigues people and enchants people. And kids are wondering about who is this figure and when will he appear. So that's really why and and how, a little bit of why and how he shows up at the Seder. Any final thoughts you'd like to share, Daniel, on this fascinating figure of Elijah? Well, one thing is that uh, in later teaching, in Hasidic teaching, in Jewish mystical teachings of the modern period, you have the idea of what's called an aspect of Elijah. The Hebrew is bechinat Eliyahu, a quality of Elijah, an aspect of Elijah. And they teach that uh, there's an aspect of Elijah within each of us. Elijah isn't just an historical figure. He's not just this legendary figure. He's not just a folklore hero. There's a spark of Elijah within each of us. You could say that's our passion, our our potential devotion to God, our potential devotion to humanity, Um, zeal, the zeal that each of us can, can draw on. We have that quality. We have that possibility. And that's how... The Hasidic writers say uh, to welcome Elijah isn't just to think of someone who might show up at the door at Passover Eve, but to cultivate that quality within each of us, which can inspire us, which can help us spread good news. Hasidism actually says if, if you're thrilled to tell somebody something, some piece of good news, that is the aspect of Elijah in you coming out. So the the devotion to others and the the passion to help redeem the world, that's something each of us can do, and and we're inspired by that spark of Elijah within. Now, with this book complete, have you turned to other projects? What's on the horizon for you? Um, I'm doing a teaching. I'm teaching Zohar online, the, the main book of the Jewish mystical tradition. I should say, too, that this is an important aspect of Elijah. He 
we talked about him in the Bible and the Talmud and Midrash, a little bit of folklore and the Seder. The other role of Elijah is in the Jewish mystical tradition specifically. He's seen as the one who inspires. So many of the Jewish mystics had an encounter with Elijah. You could say that they, they were inspired to come up with new ideas and they were new and yet they were at the same time old. The fact that, that Elijah conveyed these ideas made them kosher, you know, or gave them a stamp of authority. So Elijah is prominent in, in the Jewish mystical tradition. And um, I'm teaching about Elijah to a certain extent, but also uh, this classic of Jewish mysticism, the, the Zohar, which I worked on for, for those many years. And uh, you can find those courses online if, if you wanted to find them. Uh, you could just Google my name, Daniel Matt Zohar course, and you'll probably find it. Uh, the material on Elijah, uh, we'll, we'll find some way to get that information out. And uh, you can use Googling a little bit. Becoming Elijah is the title of the book. If you Google my name and Becoming Elijah, you'll find more than you need. Daniel, thank you for being with us once again. All the best to you. Thank you. Friends, you've been listening to New Books in Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.